0: Hi, I'm Adam Spencer, founder of the Day One Network, which is bringing the history of the Australian Startup Ecosystem to you. I believe in founders. It's why I do everything I do at Day One and our media company, W2D1 Media. And that's why the Day One Network exists to create helpful content for founders. We've got some great shows in development, but a large part of what we do couldn't be done without support from our partners and sponsors. And I couldn't be happier than to be working with NTP, who get community better than any other technology recruitment company out there. A Newcastle company like mine, NTP, are invested in seeing the growth of the local tech community in Newcastle, Sydney, and more broadly, Australia. So thank you, NTP, for helping us bring helpful content to founders and the startup community in Australia. Back to the interview. Hi, I'm Adam Spencer, founder of the Day One Network, which is bringing the history of the Australian startup ecosystem to you. I believe in founders. It's why I do everything I do at Day One and our media company, W2D1 Media. And that's why the Day One Network exists to create helpful content for founders. We've got some great shows in development, but a large part of what we do couldn't be done without support from our partners and sponsors. And I couldn't be happier than to be working with NTP, who get community better than any other technology recruitment company out there. Our Newcastle company, like mine, NTP, are invested in seeing the growth of the local tech community in Newcastle, Sydney, and more broadly, Australia. So thank you, NTP, for helping us bring helpful content to founders and the startup community in Australia. Back to the interview. Hi, I'm Adam Spencer, and welcome to Day One, the podcast that spotlights Australian startups, founders, and the organizations that empower Australian entrepreneurship. We go back to the beginning to tell a story of Australia's most inspiring founders and how they built their companies. You're listening to a special interview series as part of a documentary W2D1 is producing about the history of the Australian startup ecosystem. On the episode today we have.
1: Hi, I'm Andrea Gardner. I'm the founder and CEO of Gilix Ventures. Uh, we're a Sydney-based um, venture capital firm that invest in uh, early-stage Australian technology startups.
0: So, before we just hit record, just now we were talking about you know founders raising funds and, and the fact that you have to raise funds as well. Um, how do you how do you go, What's your approach to that?
1: Uh, <laughs> I suppose it's no different to anybody else's. Um, I think. I think the most power, first of all, we went to our existing investors that have been investing um, in our sort of syndicate business for the last six or seven years. Um, and then I suppose our major drive has been just asking those that are investing to introduce us to other people that they think might be interested in investing. We've got an interesting profile of uh, investors. Most of ours um, are successful technology entrepreneurs. Rather than sort of established family offices which you know we've yet to really build great uh, connections with yet but what we did instead was really leverage our existing connections in the startup sector but like any other startup we've got a you know we have a pitch deck we have a more detailed information memorandum as well to back that up and um, you know where Ian and I do tag team he arranges the uh, he gets the meetings and then I do the, the pitch and take them through the deck. That's really how we do it.
0: How, just out of curiosity and, you know, don't answer this if you don't want to, but um, how many meetings would you, have, would you go through to, to kind of get all the funding that you need?
1: That's a, that's a good question. We, we're lucky enough to have a really, really high hit rate, really high hit rate. I would say the vast majority of people that we meet with will in, go on to in, uh, commit to investing in the fund. But just to put that in context, I th- you know, Blackbird had quite the reputation, you know, from going from, you know, had its 29 million fund. Now they're the big boys with a billion under management. But for their 29 million dollar fund, I understand they had something like 98 investors or 99 or something like that. And one of those investors invested 10 million. So that leaves the right 97 or eight investors for, you know, 19 million. Where uh, I think 20... 4 million and we're already at 120 investors. Right. So we have an awful lot of 100K checks.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, does that make it harder to manage from your point of view, having so many LPs
1: compared to just a handful? It's much, much, much more work. Yeah. Um, and, it, and it's hard because we've actually got a small team. You know, we've, we've uh, got a, a new full-time investor starting in January. That makes us a team of five. Yeah. And two of those are part-time. So it's a very small team to um, to manage those relationships well. So our next hire early next year in um, sort of February March, we'll be looking for one an ops person and two a, a sort of community manager to make sure that we're actually you know managing those relationships yeah. as best as we can. Because at the moment we're very very stretched, and you know we've we just we're pretty proud of what we've achieved since you know. The last year in particular um, you know in August the 16th we did the first close of our fund yep and uh, since then we've just agreed to the 10th investment this year so we'll have closed 10 investments in the fund since August so we've,
0: congratulations it's
1: been a huge amount of work so it's to get those small but important things right like your communications with your LPS and managing your investor relationships um, it's important but it's probably something that we need to focus more on
0: before we do go back to the very beginning when you first got involved in this whole scene uh what do you enjoy most about your job
1: oh that's an easy question <laughs> uh it's twofold one i like i well there's three things three big things one i think it's an absolute privilege to back the most extraordinary founders to try and make the world a bit better like, that really hits an L on the head for me. It's intrinsically valuable as well as, you know, you can generate strong revenues. Two, it's an absolute privilege to work with my small but amazing team. They are extraordinarily high calibre and I just feel every day, I feel so lucky to be surrounded with, um, with such incredibly high calibre team. Um, and... The third one is that I get bored really fast. <laughs> the minute my learning curve flattens off, I get really bored and I don't function as well. But if I've got a steep learning curve, that excites me and I you know, I think that brings out the best in me. And given that it's a constantly steep learning curve for me, it just keeps me really interested and stimulated and you know, I have to learn about a new business sector almost every time I invest that's That's exciting you have to get up the learning curve on the individuals um and 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 it's a steep learning curve running you know a venture capital business not you know it's usually an apprenticeship model and I've done it by the seat of the pants (laughs) right from the beginning (laughs) but I've been very very lucky that um you know we've got a wonderful I think we've got a really wonderful um, startup sector in Australia that is pretty, from what I can gather, especially if you say compare it with something like some of the stories you hear from Silicon Valley, we've got this wonderfully um, generous, gratuitously generous community mm. so that I've, you know, people, the sort of top people in venture capital, like, I don't know, Daniel Petrie and Rick Baker and Michelle Decker. um, You know, all these people, uh, Bill Barty, all these people just have been so generous in just answering and responding to my constant barrage of questions. You know, what do I do here? (laughs) You know, oh, what about this sort of regular... You know, know, there's so many questions as you grow. Yeah. um, And, you know, they've been really generous in helping me shortcut that learning process. So I love the fact that the community is just so... Supportive, and I suppose it's like any culture. I see it as being set from the top, and that we're very lucky here that the the big big boys and girls are good human beings, and they've set a great culture. So you've got you know good human beings like Mike Cannon Brooks, who's really investing in a very meaningful way, not just financially, but his time and effort into combating climate change. And you've got um, you know people like like you know, Michelle and Rick and all these people that are just good human beings. So I think they have been really uh, meaningful in kind of setting the culture for the sector.
0: What amazing mentors you have. I
1: know, I know. I feel that's, again, I feel really privileged. You know, I just feel really lucky that they're, and just, Incredibly grateful for their just gratuitous generosity because it goes so one way most of the time. Mm. Like I'm not sure that there's much that I've been able to do to help them, but they've been they've helped me enormously, and and even to the point you know when we, the AFR um, they were quite happy you know a lot of these people were really happy for us, like Daniel Petrie and David Shane and people like that, were very happy to for us to use their names as having in, invested in our fund, mm. and that was really powerful because mm. I think took us about uh, nine around nine months to raise that first ten million that we we're aiming for for the fund
0: yeah
1: then the AFR published its article, and less than two weeks later we had twenty two million Wow, you know it was just <laughs>
0: Did AFI get a commission on any of it? <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I have to say I'm very grateful to Paul Smith because it was, it, was it was a really, really ha- tremendously helpful piece of PR for us.
0: Yes. So let's, let's go back now to, to the very beginning. When, when would you say you first got kind of exposed to the Australian startup ecosystem?
1: Well, um, we came here in 2002 to Sydney, And um, I don't think I was ever cut out to be a (laughs) full-time mother and housewife, but uh, I, yeah, I was pretty busy with little kids and feeling particularly understimulated. I'd been a, you know, investment banker and done stuff before, I suppose, that kept me occupied. And just out of interest, and I knew nothing about it, uh, when Ian started Innovation Bay, he was a, for the listeners, he's, you know, we're married, uh, but he's, It does have quite a high profile in the startup sector. He also works half-time for Dulix now. Mm. Uh, But he started Innovation Bay because he was an entrepreneur and there was really no other real structure around to facilitate the learning and networking. He didn't know anyone and he was eager to learn. So he started Innovation Bay to provide these networking um, and educational opportunities for himself, and then for other entrepreneurs in a similar boat. Yeah, and um, he, as you probably know, he's that's now he's he ran it as a labour of love for about fifteen years. But it's now um, he works half time for Innovation Bay and half time for us. But back then he ad, started adding in these uh, pitch event type dinners, which were, I think they'll, I think they very well might have been the first, or at least one of the very early pitch event type you know, the pitch events that were held in Australia. Um, and so I used to go to those just out of interest. And after a while, there's this sort of pattern recognition. You kind of start to see the characteristics of those that go on to do well and, um, you know, those that don't. Mm. And then we saw, saw Storages pitch Vanessa Wilson. Uh, They were the first to market with deduplication software for the cloud. And we thought, oh, my God, this is a a huge technical problem. If they can sell this, it can save enterprises hundreds of millions of dollars. This is a really good investment opportunity, pre-revenue, pre the results of the pilot. You know, Ian was well connected enough that he could, you know, knew someone that could actually test whether the tech really did solve this problem that some big enterprises had thrown a lot of money at and failed to solve. Yeah, Um, So we didn't have a lot of money ourselves, so we wrote a very modest check ourselves, and then by the end of the day, filled the allocation that we had, and two things happened. Three and a half years later, we returned 10x to our investors, and when storage use was um, purchased by a New York Stock Exchange listed company called uh, Pure Storage, but at the time, I realized that there was this huge, there was a big appetite out there for investors to access the asset class, but it was kind of crippled with fear of the unknown and the recognition that it's a really high-risk asset class. Mm. Great potential, but it's a very high-risk asset class to um, invest very, very early pre-revenue in these early-stage tech startups. So I started Gilix to provide a, a much better sort of risk-managed or hopefully risk-mitigated way um, for these for investors to access the asset class. And so, because I'm a bit... You know, I'm a bit of a dot-the-I's-cross-the-T's person. Um, And I have a previous life as a lawyer and, you know, big global debt capital markets transactions. You know, I like to do things properly, especially if, uh, you know, I feel a big weight of responsibility when investors are following me. Mm. You know, they're making investment decisions basically based on having confidence and trusting my decision-making. So I probably did pretty heavy due diligence, you know, probably more appropriate for Series A rather than pre-seed uh, startups. But we've continued to do that because it is a really high risk asset class, and, um, but the potential is enormous. Um, and I think that worked really well to help build that investor base, you know, because it's all about trust and confidence in your decision making, I suppose. So, but it was an interesting way to start having no track record and, um, no money and no operational experience, but, you know, I was eager to learn. And originally, you know, the investors that were interested, they would come in and they would want two 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 and a half hours with me just to get to know me and get up that learning curve. I you know, that comfort curve with me as a person mm. and you know, deal flow was good. A lot of that was because of Ian's high profile in the sector. Initially, or almost, it was all because of his very high profile in the sector, which we leveraged the wazoo out of. Um, but, you know, direct, we've, we have built a reputation ourselves now um, and we have really strong direct deal flow that, uh, you know, doesn't rely on him at all anymore, though his reputation is very helpful. We've now done, I think I've lost track because the cadence has been so fast recently, but we've done over 40 investments now Wow! in, uh, I think it's over 30 companies, and then we raised our first fund in in August.
0: I would like to talk about the deal flow in a second, but two two questions, like how has your law, uh, law and investment banking background really helped you, but also... Um, you know move into being a venture capitalist but also what is the biggest kind of surprise about starting a venture capital firm?
1: Great question so um, I think the law and investment banking background look my whole professional career before this was in debt not you know I barely knew what a share was Um, I mean obviously I knew what a share was but it wasn't equity was not my area of expertise Um, but I think it I think it helped my credibility, you know, that believe it or not, having worked for Lehman Brothers in London, I, helped, I think that helped my credit build confidence in me. And I think it's just that expectation of excellence in your approach to things and the way you, you did things. You, you don't cut corners, you just do things right or you don't do them. And I think that attitude uh, has probably been helpful. Uh, And I think there's a very, I think the other thing that's been helpful, this is a heavily financially regulated area. So the legal background, I suppose, in particular made me particularly um, concerned to make sure that we're completely, you know, compliant with and no gaps type of thing. Hmm. And I suppose the transaction management, you know, some of those basic skills and stuff. But I think the surprise thing, the biggest surprise has been a complete delight. The biggest surprise is that, to sort of provide the context, integrity is a really big part of me and who I am, you know, my values. It's just really, really important to me is trying to always do the right thing. And um, I'm feeling a bit emotional now because I'm quite touched that that I've found that to be more highly valued in what I'm doing now with GeoLix than ever in my whole career before that. And that's just, it's wonderful. Um, I spoke to a branding person once. uh, Some marketing branding people said, oh, you know, you've got to work out who your customers are and and then sort of target, focus your branding on them. And then I spoke to another one uh, through uh, Heads Over Heels. I've forgotten his name, James. I'd love to give him a plug because I thought what he said was spot on. He said, no, that's that's the wrong way around. What Mm. you need to do is work out what Mm. your values are. And
0: attract the customers, get that
1: message out there, and then you attract the right people to you. And mm. I think that's what's been happening. So we have, you know, our investors on the, ho- you know, they seem to share our values and are attracted to us partly because of our values. Um, and it's the same with the team and the 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 talent that we attract and the founders that we attract. And that's that's just this wonderful. Um, luxury of having people with aligned values that on your team in your portfolio and your investors
0: how, how do you b- balance that commitment to not cutting corners that integrity with with having a small team with with punching above your weight and i suppose being a little under resourced compared to what your output is
1: you've hit the nail on the head there it's it's pretty impossible to balance um We've been able to do it so far because of the incredibly high calibre of my team with, you know, Alan Greenspan and Kim Hooper and Ian, obviously. But I think what's happened is they've just worked far too hard for the last, in particular since about July last year when things just took off like a rocket. And we're all tired. So, um and it's not sustainable, but luckily we've got an awesome new um, investor, full-time investor joining us in January, Will Lee. So, you know, we're super excited about him joining us and that will help ease the pressure. And then as I said, you know, now that we have a fund and we have that certainty of revenue, we're, we're planning on hiring, hiring a couple more people.
0: That's fantastic.
1: In around March, April. You know what the cost of it, as I said earlier, the cost of it is that you know some of the, um, I think just some of the management of our relationships with LPs, which we seem we we, and which we recognise as being really critical and really important, has probably not been of. We could do better, Mm. and we just need we will get more manpower to do that.
0: I I mean I obviously don't have tens of millions of dollars under. Under management, but I, I kind of relate in a way to you know interviewing 150 people, managing you know, 20 partners for this series. I feel like I have dropped the ball in some regards as well in terms of relationship management, and I feel terrible about that. So I, yeah. I can relate a little bit to what you're talking about. What do you think some of the gaps are looking at today and into the future within the Australian startup ecosystem? Like where can we make some improvements?
1: Well, I think to start, the gap look, the clear glaring gap uh, that's growing is in the seed funding stage, you know, professional investing. So, you know, go back to the Blackbird example, started off with a 29 million fund. Now it's got a billion under management. Mm. It must be pretty tough to write a check for three or 500 as seed stage now. Mm. And, and look, this has been across the board. I'm not, don't want to single out Blackbird, who I, I'm a super fan of, but I think if you've got a billion under management or 800 million, you probably, the sort of fund economics suggests that you probably need to be writing much bigger checks than three or 500,000, you know, especially if you think about if you're going to work actively on a board, each partner might work on, say, four to six boards, and you're not likely to be wanting to work on a board that, you know, you've written a 300K check for out of a billion under management. The result of that is that I I think that... um, and there's some good evidence in the AIC's last report that there's while there's a lot more fund uh, venture capital funds under management in Australia there's less professional investment going in at the seed and reven- pre-revenue stage and that's creating a growing gap in the market and i think that the, that has a there's a very serious risk that that will undermine the pipeline for these big companies the the big venture Firms, which obviously ultimately has the risk of impacting on um, economic growth in Australia because startups are providing, you know, the big provider of uh, jobs and yes. economic growth. Um, so I think that, that that growing seed funding gap is, is, is something that would be good to do something about. I like to think we're doing our bit there. And it's a great opportunity really for us to leverage So it's it's a good opportunity. The other thing I think that's happening in the market, it seems to have changed quite significantly by COVID. In that, you know, our original fund strategy was to you know write a small check and then be very disciplined about not following on in those that don't do well. But um, because we're investing so early, but also you know triple quadruple down in those that do do well. But those that are really doing well the competition for that is really hotting up. And even if the found you've developed this strong relationship with the founders and the founders really want you in the round, they, um, are often having less power and part of the power to make that decision. When the big U S increasingly big U S investors are coming in and competing for these deals and, um, and squeezing some of us out here Hmm. and, um, or maybe not out entirely, but instead of quadrupling down, we're only getting a bit more sort of thing. A lot of that, I think, has been brought about by COVID that the US investors that weren't comfortable not, you know, investing without meeting people, and I was the same. I, Pre-COVID, I wouldn't have dreamed of investing in a founder that I hadn't met, uh, but since COVID, I've invested in plenty that I've only met over Zoom, and they're becoming more comfortable investing in Australian mm. startups that are doing well over zoom without coming over here and um and so the the competition's hotting up
0: (laughs) what what do you mean by you know and this is going to show a little bit of reflect on how much i know about this this space the investment space but what do you mean by them the founders not having the power to to just let you know you quadruple your investment in them how are you getting forced out
1: the big the so I'm thinking of one particular example uh, recently yeah. I think the round size was it's not completed or anything yet so but the round size I think was six and a half million the uh, the USVC was not going a condition of its investment an absolutely non-negotiable conditions that they took most of that right so there was a tiny tiny slice of the pie to divide up between existing investors and those that um, the founder felt uh, you know, they wanted to look after.
0: Yeah. So it's, uh, it's just like, so, morph- that,
1: so it was, I like, do the founder has had the choice of, do I take investment from one of the top funds in the world that mm. can have a massive impact, a potentially really gain changing impact on our business because they've helped take to market a business like this before. Yeah. They know how to help us scale it. They've got tons of resources in terms of, you know, HR, recruitment, strategic connections. It's a massively valuable investor, a risk that for someone, you know, a smaller investor in Australia that cannot provide that kind of um, game changing help. Uh, it, It just means that in a sense their power, well, I suppose they still ultimately have the power, but not in practice. I've read
0: a couple of articles um, and you've said it in an interview here as well about your amazing deal flow for g Yeah. How, do, how have you managed that?
1: Well, I think there's, there's a couple of ways. One, you know, there's that growing seed funding gap and that's, that's our focus. So, and I think we're, we, we're well known for that. That's actually where we focus um, yeah. and that's where we feel we can help the most. So there's that reputation. I think, you know, we do have a reasonably high profile for, you know, the size of business that we are. You know, originally kind of leveraged Ian's high profile and he probably has, you know, he's got one of the highest profiles in the sector. I'm biased, but I suspect not, you know, very biased, obviously. He's my partner in business and in life, but my guess is that most people would probably agree. And so that's helped. We have our own profile, I suppose. But I think also we have wonderful portfolio founders that talk to other founders and they encourage us to come out our way. And when the founders come to us that way, they come kind of pre-sold. We don't have to sort of compete for the for the deal really, because our founders have often done a really nice job of selling us for us, which is, which is lovely. I also think that you know, whereas further down the, the life cycle, you know, maybe Series A, B, the competition is hotting up, where we invest, the, because it's high risk, you don't really want to take the whole round or even 80% of the round. You want to spread your risk across many more investments. And so there's an awful lot of you know, collaboration and co-investing. And you know, we talk to each other a lot, you know, those that, you know, that we co-invest with. You know, and we co-invest a lot. We co-invest with Airtree, with Carcina, with Blackbird, uh, Investable. We co-invest a lot and and help each other, I suppose. Maybe that's, that's unique to the, the stage we invest at because we it's in our interest to help each other to, because we want to co-invest. Either way, I love it. It's really nice to work in that environment where everyone want, wants to help each other and we're all aligned with wanting to help the founders
0: moving over in 2002 we're in 2021 now I have that right right 2002 yeah yeah what are some of the biggest movements or changes you've observed in the ecosystem over the last whatever that is 20 years
1: I think there's a lot more infrastructure to support startups there's lots of Incubators, accelerators, some have come and gone, but there's still lots still around um, in different capital cities. There's there's actually communities in each of the capital cities around Australia. Um, and you've got like the South Australian government, the, the Premier is really supportive of startups and they're throwing lots of really helpful support to startups to attract them to South Australia because they know they create jobs. The Victorian government is as well. I know that they, you know, they're even uh, funded a fund of funds, which is really, I think, that is a really powerful thing to do because getting a new cap, uh, venture capital business off the ground, raising that first ten million, uh, often without a tr- most often without a track record, is really hard. But if you've got um, a fund of funds providing some matching funding, that I think will have a really big impact on. Helping get the capital that early stage um, founders need, because you know, as I said, there's that growing gap there, that the bigger funds managers can't, you know, that that's not really their focus, um, and that's helping, helping sort of grow the amount of investors that can actually invest it that at that stage. So I think that's a really good move. I don't think it's off the ground yet, but it, it's it's on its it's well on its way, and then. I think we could do with that in in New South Wales. And we've got, I think another really important thing is that you've got, what we didn't have back then was second time founders reinvesting their time and expertise and money into the sector. And I think that's probably the biggest and most powerful and important change is that we now have lots of second, third time founders or successful founders that are reinvesting their, their time, their expertise and their money into the sector, you know, you just have to look at um, Scott Farquhar, Mike Kenner-Brooks and a ton of our investors. And, you know, we've got 700 registered investors and a ton of those are actually successful founders. And so, so for example, when COVID first hit last March, April, not the last one the year before, you know, I think I wasn't unlike a lot of people that I felt a bit like, um, you know, the coyote when the roadrunner had run by, you know, it's just sort of spinning around going, eek, you know, oh shit, what do we do now? (laughs) Um, How's this gonna affect things? So what we did was we organized all these sort of Zoom calls with each of the syndicates that had, syndicate investors with the founders that they, you know, of the companies that invested in and did a big brainstorming session to identify the risks and how we might brainstorm how to mitigate them identify any opportunities that might have been generated by covid and how we might leverage them um you know and i think seven or eight years ago there there wasn't enough people around to do that
0: Hmm. so congratulations that was the very first roadrunner reference in the entire series of (laughs) so that's amazing
1: shows my age
0: (laughs) Uh, i i absolutely love roadrunner huge fan so thank you for that uh (laughs) And so the last, these last two questions, I end every interview with these. And the first one is, what advice would you give a brand new founder that would help them succeed slightly? One, one piece. One piece. Oh, God. Can I do two? Yes. Yep.
1: Trust in yourself. Yep. Back yourself. They're already doing that, but back yourself. And then when it comes to raising funds, do your homework. Like, do your due diligence on the potential investor and on what terms look like and how they might impact on you later on
0: so this last question not really a question but just a bit of a prompt um we as you know we're trying to create a documentary that will tell the history of the australian startup ecosystem uh, as well as well as we can as honestly and wholly as we can i want founders investors academics policymakers everybody from every corner of the ecosystem to listen to this story what message if any do you have for them
1: uh, the politicians, I would like them to be, you know, look at the hard numbers of how the startup ecosystem is creating more jobs than any other sector in Australia, and get behind it. You know, I think we've we've been terribly let down by uh, the federal government, and I think the New South Wales government could do a lot more. But yeah, that's probably my main thing: is recognise how important it is, and that it's much more important for the economic. Uh, future of Australia than digging stuff out of the ground
0: thank you so much for your time Andrea
1: my pleasure thank you so much
0: I hope you enjoyed that interview more interviews are on the way follow the podcast wherever you're listening right now stay tuned for more interviews with many many more amazing people from the Australian startup ecosystem thanks for listening and see you next time